Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. This is the second lecture in a three-part series dealing with Kabbalah emerging after the teachings of the Ari, Rabbi Isaac Luria. This series, recorded in 2009, deals with complex terms and ideas. To help with this, we have provided a list of definitions, as well as relevant graphics, on the episode page for this podcast. Listeners who find this material new or challenging may find it beneficial to refer to these resources as they listen to the lecture. To find them, visit davidsolomon.online slash podcasts and click on the link for episode 60. All right, good evening. My prediction was, after last week's talk, that about half of the audience would be completely fried and that we would get about half back. So it's basically a little more positive than that. So I'm very pleased to people who were here last week and nevertheless braved coming back to what is very difficult material. If you left last week's talk not really understanding what I'm talking about, that's okay. This material has never been regarded as easy and it really, really is at the high end. I'm giving you sort of the low end of the high end of the Jewish thought spectrum. These ideas have come into the world in the last... Lurianic ideas have come into the world in the last 400 years. They have, in some ways, changed the world in which we live. And for the Jewish people who are the conveyors of Torah throughout history in order to change the consciousness of humankind, obviously it's our job to decipher and negotiate these ideas. But (laughs) it's not easy. Last week I spoke primarily about two massive Kabbalistic figures who really set the pattern of all subsequent Kabbalistic schools that devolve from them. That is, once again, I was shown this week, some of you may know that there was a very famous Kabbalist called Esther in the land of Israel last week, (laughs) and that aroused a certain interest amongst different people who came to me and asked me my opinion on different things and I was once again shown a book whose opening words basically are the Kabbalah says. Any book that opens with the words the Kabbalah says is a book that should be closed almost immediately unless it's immediately followed by the words in. In other words Everything is about context. Everything is about source. Those of us wanting to run around and get a greater perception on the divine reality that drives this world, which is really what Kabbalah is showing us, and our role within it and our relationship to the God and creator of the universe, need to realize that all Kabbalistic thinking is in context and comes down to us through various major streams. There are, as I said last week, two major revelations in Kabbalistic history that are universally regarded as major revelations of divine thought, namely the Zohar and the Kabbalah of the Ari. 
And therefore, this course picks up from basically just after the RE. And last week I discussed two major streams of thought, that of Rabbi Chaim Vital, who is regarded by many as the primary disciple of the Ari, who lived in the 16th century in Tzvat, the Ari being Isaac Luria, that is what we talk about, Lurianic Kabbalah, is the unwritten revelation that he gave to a close group of disciples. And the other is the schools emerging, the writings and thinkings, teachings emerging from the school of Rabbi Yisrael Sarug, who was the first really to take Kabbalistic ideas into Europe. And I looked at various differences and it was not easy conceptual material. I basically, for those who want to know what I did last week and weren't here, I basically covered what would probably be at least a year's worth of academic Kabbalistic study at any university, but I crammed that in to about an hour and in the other remaining time I just went on an orgy of confusion. <laughs> Nevertheless, we have emerged and tonight I want to discuss two later thinkers who really represent the unfolding, continued unfolding of this revelation that we call Kabbalistic thought. Tonight I'm going to talk about two very, very, very influential and important Kabbalistic thinkers who are living in the 18th century. I have spoken about these figures before in this room in the context of 18th century Jewish history, but we haven't delved deep into their Kabbalistic ideas and how they influence the unfolding picture. If you remember, that's where I got up to, if you remember, at the end of last week I spoke about a very influential text called Emek HaMelech which was written by Rav Naftali Bachrach in Germany in the 1640s. So already Lurianic Kabbalah has been wandering around Europe a little bit, gaining an influence for the first few decades of the 17th century, of the 1600s. And I mentioned that one of the amazing facets of this Emek HaMelech, it has many amazing facets, but one of its amazing facets is the fact that it is Kabbalistic knowledge and Kabbalistic awareness itself, which is going to bring about the final redemption as we draw down into this world the Torah Hasod, the deeper mystical meaning of Torah, what Torah is really telling us. Now, I want to tell you who those two people I'm going to talk about are tonight. I'm going to talk about the Ramchal. And I'm going to talk about the Gra. If you don't know who the Ramchal is and you don't know who the Gra is, hold on, I will explain that as soon as I get to those people. But I, in fact, I have got to those people, so I'll explain it now. <laughs> we have a tradition. We have a, a tradition. It's a very strong tradition as traditions go that the Gra, that is Elijah, the Eliyahu, the Gaon of Vilna. Does everybody know who Eliyahu, the Gaon of Vilna was? Does anybody not know who Eliyahu, the Gaon of Vilna? Well, you're not going to admit it now. Eliyahu, the Gaon of Vilna, everybody's familiar, the towering spiritual mountain of the 18th century, living in, of course, Vilna. And he is, he, he is living when? 17-something is good, basically 1720 to around 1797, so his life spans most of the 18th century. We have a tradition that the Gras said 
to Chaim Volozhin, because it's Chaim Volozhin who records this in the introduction, uh, to his introduction to the Graal's commentary on Sifr Ditzniuta. And Chaim Volozhin, if he records something, you can pretty much take it as authentic. That the Gaon of Vilna said that Lurianic Kabbalah. I'm going to do something extraordinary right now in order to elucidate this point. Those of you who are afraid, look away. I'm going to show you something that very few people would be foolhardy enough to show you. I'm going to show you basically, basically, the whole of Etz Chaim, the whole of Lurianic Kabbalah in a, about one minute. This is not where David says one minute, but he really takes half an hour. This is one minute. Don't move, Harriet. It's dangerous stuff that's going on. Okay, okay. I've got to do this because what I'm going to talk about tonight will make more sense, but I need to show you this picture. Do not be afraid of this picture. If you don't understand, it's okay, but absorb it. We basically start with Ein Sof. Ein Sof does a Tzimtzum, a self-contraction into itself. There's an empty space of the infinite light. Down comes a Kav. Down, down comes a Kav. This cuff is a line which re-enters the empty space of divine light. And as the cuff goes, it produces ten spherot, first of all, on an igulim level, circular level, and then also on a yosher level, which is more or less, and there are many, many different ways in which this is configured, which is more or less b'tzurat adam. It is a yosher of spherot. And so basically we have a figure going on here. And then there is... In the, this is Adam Kadmon, and then in the Parsa of Adam Kadmon, halfway through Adam Kadmon, the lights smash the vessels that are meant to contain them, and so we fall. And what is recreated here is, first of all, the world of Atzilut, the world of emanation, which is a perfect, idealized, reconstructed world, and then that is covered by the three worlds of Biyah, Biyah, Yitzirah, Asirah, which enclose the lower half of Adam Kadmon, down in Olam Asiyah is us, and we are attempting to fix and grow, uh, or help grow and nurture the unification of all of these parts of him, because the broken Sfirot are now reconstructed in parts of him, which are complete configurations of Sfirot, so they can contain the light. And what we're particularly concerned with is, is the growth of a partsuf called Zeranpin, which is the manifestation of Adam Kadmon inside Olam Atzilut and contains the complete configuration and completion of all the worlds. Now, the Gra, I mean, you don't understand that this takes years and years and there's thousands of pages and you've got to work it through and it's, what I've given you is, an, is a reductio, not ad absurdum, but in extreme brevitas of the cosmic picture of which Am Yisrael partake. The Gra, the Gaon of Vilna, all right, so this is, this is emerging. Don't forget that the Ari, what the Ari is really doing is he's deciphering the Zohar, which is revealed several hundred years before him. The Ari is living in the 16th century in Tzvat. Don't get confused. The Gra, the Gaon of Vilna, is a couple of hundred years later. He's in a place called Vilna. The Gra says that since the revelation of Lurianic Kabbalah, by the way, uh, you are aware that what I just gave you is Whose version? Chaim Vital. 
Of course, obviously, and I won't, I won't smash it all now, but Chaim Vital starts with, if you recall, the Malbush, the letters, and then the garment folds over, and then we have a Rashimu. The grass said of this entire, of the whole of Lurianic Kabbalah, that everything that the Ari said, this whole picture, is a Mashal. Now, the word Mashal, those of us, and hopefully most of us, are familiar enough with Hebrew, sometimes. In modern Hebrew, le mashal can mean, for example, but a mashal is also, is a, which we know from Midrashic literature and even from Zephyr Mishnah, mashal is a parable, it's an allegory, it's a metaphor. In Hebrew, we don't necessarily have all the different words to indicate those type of literary devices, but the word mashal covers them all. The grass said that everything the Ari told us is a mashal. And for every mashal, there is, don't have ulpan kitab bet freak out when I say this, there is a nimshal. There is that thing which is the hidden underlying meaning of what the mashal is trying to tell you. The grass is, as recorded by Rabchaim of Elohim, that only three people have ever understood that mashal. They've understood the mashal, sorry, they've understood the mashal. They've understood, plenty of people have understood the mechanics as complex as it is, because very, very few systems in human thought are as complex as Lurianic Kabbalah, I can tell you. Theoretical physicists have looked at Lurianic Kabbalah and gone bananas. So plenty of people have mastered the mashal. Only three people have ever really known what the nimshal actually is. And for the Gra to make that statement, he obviously counts himself as one of them. <laughs> Otherwise, how would he be able to make the statement? When asked, he says, well, obviously, the other person who must have understood the Nimshal was Chaim Vital, since it's Chaim Vital that recorded... I mean, this is outside the Ari, of course. The Ari gave it over. He would have some, have some idea of what he was talking about. But Chaim Vital must have understood it. The Gra understands it, because otherwise he couldn't make that statement. And the one person in between those two figures who understood the nimshal of what was going on here, was the Ramchal. It was Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzato. And I'm going to be spending a little while talking about the Kabbalistic revolution affected by the Ramchal. Remember always, remember what I said, that what I'm doing in this course is I want to look at some of the major ways in which Kabbalistic literature forms a derech, some of the majorly influential schools of thought. There are entire post-Lurianic schools of Kabbalistic thought that sit outside the Ramchal, but the Ramchal has affected everyone in some way, and he is a revolution in thought. And the Ramchal is sitting, well, he's born 1707, and he dies in 1747. I have, on another occasion, in this room, spoken at length about the biography of the Ramchal. He is, without question, one of the most fascinating figures of the 18th century. In fact, he's one of the most fascinating figures of Jewish history. What's sitting between the Vital Sarug project that I spoke about last week, which extends basically the Ari passes away in 1572, 
Chaim Vital spends the next few decades trying to sort out what's going on with his thousands of pages of notes. Meanwhile, Sarug is running around Europe telling everyone who will listen what Lurianic Kabbalah is saying while Vital is holding the manuscripts like this and is even buried with them. And that whole story we looked at last week, that's a story that really goes up to round about 1640. What's happened between 1640 and by the time of that the Ramchal is flourishing, say, in the 1720s and 30s. What's happened? Correct. The Enlightenment. Now, if you recall last week, I happened to say that um, <laughs> uh, when I spoke about Rukhaim Vital having also spent some time dabbling in alchemy, and that who else dabbled in alchemy? probably the most famous figure of the Enlightenment, so that I said that so that people wouldn't think that dabbling in alchemy was a strange thing to do prior to modern chemistry. It was, in effect, the roots of modern chemistry. It's the same word. Who else was dabbling in chemistry? Newton. But who's the other big figure of the Enlightenment? Sorry? I'm going to come back to it, all right? I'm going to come back to it. You're listening to Collected Talks of David Solomon. If you enjoy these lectures, you can help us cover the cost of hosting, editing, and producing these podcasts for as little as $3 a month. Visit davidsolomon.online to learn more. Emek HaMelech, written by Naftali Bachrach, is a very, very influential book. Comes out in, six, as I said, comes out in 1647, 1648. It's ecstatic because it believes that the redemption is around the corner. The Kabbalistic secrets that are now being revealed in the world, the way in which God interacts with the world, the whole pattern behind divine reality, plus let's look at the world, the whole world is changing in consciousness, this is the first half of the 17th century, so Geula must be very, 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 very close, in fact the Emma Kamelech basically predicts Geula to happen round about 1648-1649. Unfortunately, as so often happens when people predict the Geula, the Geula does not happen, Insta- but instead, the exact opposite happens. The precise years that were predicted for Geula, as particularly propitious for Geula, turned out to be the tremendous tragedies of Tach, in which hundreds of thousand Jews were horrendously massacred across Europe, particularly in Eastern Europe and in Poland and so on, in the Chmielniki massacres. Something else then happens. Emek Kamelech has tremendous influence in several different directions. At the same time, and on one direction, is what? Well, when Emek HaMelech gets to the land of Israel, it starts completely fusing people's minds. If you think that Jerusalem syndrome is a recent thing, look back in Jewish history. Emek HaMelech gets to Jerusalem, where in Jerusalem there is a Kabbalistic revival in the 1660s. We've got some of the major, major Kabbalists of that period living here in Jerusalem, working on editing all of the different fragments and texts and versions that they have of Chaim Vital. Rav Yaakov Tzemach and Rav Meir Poppers in the Jerusalem school of the 1660s create our definitive editions and understandings of those texts and ideas. But they weren't reading Emek HaMelech. Emek HaMelech got to Israel and was read by other people, including Nathan of Gaza. Nathan of Gaza reads Emek HaMelech, has a total mentally and as soon as he gets to meet another chap wandering around Yerushalayim in the 1660s, a guy called Shabtai Tzvi convinces him that Dait Meshicha and the two go off and 
So we have the Sabbatean events which come out of the whole explosive popularization of Kabbalah and tremendous messianic tension following also Tatantach, following also the historical division that, and polarities that are happening between a rabbinic elite and a disenfranchised masses within the Jewish people. <laughs> but Emma Kamelech was also read by other people. And a very interesting book appears towards the end of the 17th century called the Kabbalah de Nudata or de Nudata brilliant title, who wrote the Kabbalah de Nudata, which sounds like it's an Aramaic word, but is in fact a Latin Aramaic word. It means the denuded Kabbalah, or the Kabbalah revealed, written by Christian Nor von Rosenrot, who brings Kabbalistic ideas based on Zoharic sources and Emek Hamelech's version of Lurianic Kabbalah brings that into Western culture for Christian Kabbalists and who ends up reading that according today to a number of interesting scholars who have realized now the connection and you're about to answer it was no 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 <laughs> very good very good but Isaac Newton as I said was dealing in alchemy Isaac Newton didn't really know from Kabbalah but which other massive figure of the Enlightenment who developed calculus in parallel with Newton and then went on to develop everything? Leibniz. Leibniz is not a biscuit, although there's biscuits named after him. Leibniz was, Gottfried Leibniz was the big figure of the Enlightenment. And who's reading Leibniz? Let's look at the Ramchal. The Ramchal is sitting in Italy and Italy got its Enlightenment somewhat late. So that the Ramchal finds himself in Padua, which is, as you know, about 50 miles from Venice, and it's got a massive university there, as I've spoken about the Ramchal on other occasions. We don't have time to go into his full historical biography. But the Ramchal is, has, well, by the time the Ramchal is about 20, he's basically read everything. Everything. And the Ramchal was living at a time when Italy was intellectually, if not spiritually, pretty much the centre of the Jewish world and the most exciting place to be. Everybody was converging on Italy. Philosophers, artists, I mean, I know the Renaissance is over, but now this is like a little mini-enlightenment, and especially within the Jewish world. And many great Kabbalists are trying to deal with where are we up to in this great unfolding. The Geulah did not happen. The Geula did not happen in the 1660s. Where are we up to and how have these events affected us? Remember that for the 50 or 60 years after Shabtai Tzvi, every rabbi and rabbinic authority in Europe and elsewhere in the world were on super Shabtai watch. Any trace, any leaning of Sabbatean ideas or pretentious messianism was quashed. And there were some very, very fierce figures doing that. Therefore, the Ramchal, at the age of 20, having, I mean, by the time the Ramchal was 18, I'll just remind you, he was not an average 18-year-old. He obviously already knew Tanakh completely by heart. He knew all of Midrash. He knew the whole Talmud. He had read, totally made himself completely baki in Zohar and in Kitvei But as well as that, he'd read all philosophy and especially 
all Italian literature, everything from Dante to his own day, and he was able to write and has written, and we have his Italian pastoral poems, as well as his entire reconstruction of a Zohar, a second Zohar for our age. There are many, many facets to the Ramchal, not least of which is the fact that he was really the first to write in what we could recognize as potentially a modern Hebrew. Everybody, by the time of the 19th century, was excited about the Ramchal. The Haskalah were absolutely ecstatic over the Ramchal, but so were, it was everybody else. But that wasn't the case for much of the 18th century, because by the time the Ramchal was 20, he's relating things that he has heard from a divine Magid. Now, what is a Magid? Very, very, very unique people. We're not talking about hearing voices from the microwave here. Very, very unique... No, we're not. Very unique people in Jewish history, through years of concentration and meditation, are capable of accessing, as we understand it... I mean, Luriani Kabbalah is a consciousness-transforming paradigm, but certain individuals are capable of accessing levels of Torah which come directly from a divine source via a Magid. There are famous figures in Jewish history who have claimed to have a Magid, but the Ramchal's 20, he's not married, he's hanging out with a bunch of university students that he has organized into a special circle in order to bring Mashiach. We've also, he's living in an environment where some of the most Profound anti-Sabbatean works have been written. Yosef Ergas writes an amazing book fighting the Sabbatean cause, but also showing that Lurianic Kabbalah is not this literal thing. Shabtai Tzvi had said of this picture, the Ari painted a really nice chariot, but he didn't say who was riding on it. And Ergas is trying to show you that there is much more in common between the ideas coming through Kabbalistic thought and philosophy... And another major figure in Italy at the time was Emmanuel Chayriki, who's basically trying to summarize for everybody what Lurianic Kabbalah is talking about. And he ends up summarizing it in a book called Mishnat Hasidim, which has nothing to do with the Hasidic movement per se, but became the central Kabbalistic text of the 18th century. If you want to see a text that really influenced people, it's Mishnat Hasidim. Every serious Kabbalist, and I know that means everybody in this room, Every serious Kabbalist should at least own, if not study, a copy of Emek HaMelech and Mishnat Hasidim. Because those are the two books from which basically all Kabbalistic schools, even Esther's, are based. So the Ramchal, on the one hand, is already, because he's brilliant at imitating people, and because he's not just imitating them, but doing it better than they do, he writes a philosophical text about Kabbalah that matches Eragas's, and he writes... Uh, a summary of Luriana Kabbalah that matches Ricky's work and so on. But the Ramchal really, really sits down once he get, settles down after his Italian phase. The Ramchal was, as you know, basically kicked out of Italy. Thousands and thousands of his pages were confiscated by the rabbis of Venice and other rabbis in Germany who sided with the rabbis of Venice. He was seen as a dangerous figure and the Ramchal ends up in Amsterdam. Amsterdam. Grinding lenses, by the way, of course, just like Spinoza before him. He ends up in Amsterdam and he is told that he's not allowed to teach Kabbalah till he's 40. And when he's 40, he goes to the land of Israel with his family. And just right after they arrive, they die in a plague. And he's buried in Tiberian Ekstra Rabbi Akiva. 
The rum hole represents an astonishing shift that we would call... I mean, he's not the only person doing this, but he's really highlighting an intellectual movement within Kabbalistic thought, which we call, which I call, sorry, I should say I call, but anyone would understand this, the mashalic shift. It is a shift in perception towards seeing Lurianic Kabbalah as not something, not a literal description of something in terms of lights and worlds and, you know, entities, however refined they are, and therefore what we have to do is understand the description, but in fact to the idea that everything the Ari is talking about is a mashal, both individually, each stage he's talking about, and collectively. It's a mashal that we can understand in order to fulfill our purpose in the world. The Ramchal tells you, and because this totally makes sense if you think when the Ramchal is living and where he's living, the Ramchal tells you that the whole revelation of the Ari is understandable according to logic. There is a divine logic behind this revelation. The Ramchal's really important work, which I'm happy to say, for those who are interested, has actually been translated recently. For many years, obviously, it wasn't. It's called Klach Pitchei. Chochmah, 138 openings of wisdom, in which he attempts to set out the key axioms of the divine logic inside the Ari's system. This is a very important exercise because it's an exercise that's going to take us even hundreds of years after the Ramchal, people are still engaging in this particular type of exercise. Not everyone, but a lot of people are. And so I'm looking primarily at Klach B'tchei Chochmah, but the Ramchal wrote many other Kabbalistic works. By the way, of course, it is the Ramchal's idea that the world, or this revelation is guided by an interior logic that can be understood, that of course means that that then leads to the Ramchal's major works on what we might call theology. That is, that there is a logic, there is a logos that applies to God. That explains the Ramchal's book, who has come across the book Derech Hashem. So, Derech Hashem is really a book of theology. It's not, certainly not on the surface, dealing with what the Ari deals with, but it became an immensely influential text. So much so, I would venture to say today, that if you ask your average pulpit rabbi somewhere in the world a question in theology, chances are that after he's gone back and gone away and called you back and had a special meeting to discuss it, that the answer that you would get would probably find its source somewhere in the Ramchal. The Ramchal's Derech Hashem really becomes, and its explanations of why things exist and what is happening and so on, becomes almost like the basis of subsequent mainstream Jewish thinking in many ways. That, of course, leads the Ramchal onto the Ramchal's other famous work on ethics, which is Misilat Yisharim, which become a major primary work on ethics. Once again, if you pick that up, you will not see Kabbalistic thought on the surface, although the Gra, of course, was one of those who held that Misilat Yisharim was a major Kabbalistic text, and he even went as far as to say, and remember it's the Gra saying this, that in the first eight chapters of Misilat Yisharim there is not one superfluous word. I don't know what words the Gra had a problem with in the subsequent two chapters. I haven't been privy to that. Where does this logical system start for the Ramchal? 
Where does it start? I'm giving you the Ramchal. I'm giving you the Ramchal in essence. There are obviously many, many details of the Lurianic revelation that the Ramchal deals with, but I want to give it to you in essence on a point we've already discussed last week. Where does the logic, the divine logic begin, says the Ramchal? And the Ramchal takes one of the few surviving propositions from the Middle Ages that hadn't been smashed to pieces, and that was this idea. That God... is the ultimate good. And the ultimate good, and he uses the terms teva hatov lehitiv, that it is in the nature of the good to bestow goodness. So everything that happens in the subsequent creation is a manifestation of the desire of God to bestow goodness. Now, says the Ramchal, we can begin to understand, let's try and understand what it is that the Ari is talking about. As you know, and we discussed it last week, the opening of Lurianic Kabbalah deals with the concept of Tzimtzum, deals with the idea that God is, well, there's two movements here, there's two movements. You see... There's a, and, and this is what's really amazing is, is this mental picture that the RE wants you to have. According to what we understand, it's, there's a movement that can go like that, but there's also a movement that goes like that. Really what Chaim Vital is explaining is that God is contracting into itself, away from a, a point, in order to create this halal in which the, the quality of God that is infinite is not revealed so that things can exist. Here's the halal... And although, and here's what's amazing, although the Ramchal primarily confines himself to a discussion of the Vitalian picture, he does spend a lot of time talking about what is left inside the space after Ein Sof, after the infinite, has withdrawn. And what is left inside the space is something that Vital hasn't discussed really, but Saruk did. What's left inside the space is a concept called the Rashimu. The Rashimu, from the word Roshim. In other words, there is an impression of the infinite. It's not the essence of infinite light, but there's no such thing as holiness being removed from a place without it leaving some spirit of impression where it has been. This is called the Rashimu. This is all Chaim Vital. It's not necessarily talking about the Rashimu as a concept, but this is what the Ramchal is explaining is happening inside the Halal. Outside the halal, and by the halal I mean this circle, this space, outside the halal is just Ein Sof, the infinite. But what the Ramchal wants you to understand that by infinite, he means the infinite will, the Ratzon of Ein Sof. We're no longer going to talk about things being created in the infinite. That doesn't make sense, says the Ramchal. We're only going to talk about things being created within or by divine will. How does an infinite will relate to a finite space or a finite entity? And the Ramchal tells you that it's only by relating to a finite entity that the infinite in some form or infinite will can be revealed. Therefore, what is coming into the halal, the kav, the line of Ein Sof that comes into the halal, 
is the line of divine will coming into this space to interact with the Rashimu. And the Rashimu is effectively the collection of everything that can possibly exist. Anything that can exist, that can, not even everything that does exist, everything that can exist as a finite entity exists inside the Rashimu. The Rashimu is the roots of everything that can possibly go, is going to exist. Meaning that everything that can exist is ultimately rooted in Ensof, but it's pulled in the Rashimu. The will of Ensof, the will of the divine comes, and you'll understand why I'm going into this in a minute, the will of the divine comes into the Rashimu and begins to organize everything that could exist in such a way that the divine will can ultimately be revealed. We know from Chaim Vital that as the Kampf comes into the Halal, it emanates, as I said, Igulim. I'm really sorry, guys. It's very difficult to give a talk on Kabbalistic ideas without actually discussing Kabbalistic ideas. It's Igulim, which are circles, and, as I said, Yosher, which is in the form of the Sephirotic pattern of right, left, and central, as I discussed both last week and the week before. Igulim, the circular emanations within the Halal, are representative of the idea of Hanhaga Klalit. Now, I need to spend a second on this word Hanhaga. Hanhaga means, what do, what, if I say the word Hanhaga, what do you think? Like a government, like management. We also might get implications of Hashgacha, which is a concept we are familiar with from Jewish theology, the idea of providence, divine providence. But this Hanhaga coming from the Igulim is Hanhaga Klalit, it is general providence. This is going to go on to become basically the laws of nature. And what emerges into the Kav and through the Kav and creates the Yosher, which is the Tzural Vadam through Sfirot and has right, middle, and right, left, and middle, is Hanhaga Pratit, is particular providence, particular guidance. The Ratzon of God organizes everything that's going to exist in the Rashimu according to the principle of Chadar. Chadar simply stands for Chesed, which represents the right column, Din, which represents the left-hand column. Remember I discussed the concept last week between different slots between Chesed and Din, and of course Rachamim, which is the mediation between benevolence and limitation and therefore represents the harmony of what is trying to be achieved. As you can see, and the reason I'm... This is only one detail of the Lurianic system that I'm going into according to the Ramchal's method, but you can see that what the Ramchal is doing, that is a shift from what Vital and Sarug are doing. Vital and Sarug were concerned with the picture, and in, certainly in Sarug's case, it was extremely mythological. What the Ramchal is doing is not just philosophizing it, he's turning it, making sure that everything that you see here is understanding that it's a mashal and it's bringing you to a certain point of consciousness to understand certain things because the Ramchal tells you that the whole purpose of being a person here, well, he quotes the Zohar, that a person, a human being's job is to know, is to gain da'at. And so it's to know the whole system, but to know what each part of the whole system is representing in your life as a way in which God 
interacts with the universe and why this exists, but it's to bring you really to the right concept of God. This process, this government, this management along this, what I call, trialectical system. I mean, there's a, some people think that Ramchal is the precursor of Kant, other thinks of Hegel. He's a massive thinker. But this management on this tripartite system is not just in terms of some cosmic arrangement of what God's doing generally in the world, but it also, of course, applies to cosmic history. So that the unfolding of the Jewish people and the unfolding of humanity generally forms according to this system. And the way in which the divine is revealed throughout history is, of course, according to Shem Havaya, which is yud Hey vav Hey, and that the Hey vav Hey, a representative of this system, with the Yud being the divine, but that is what is gradually being revealed. Okay, let me, let me, let me bring that down a little bit. For example, what is the big proto-map of the way in which the world is managed. We're inside the Ramchal now. We're deep inside books like Adir Bamarom. What is the way in which... What's the big map? What's the pattern? You don't know what I'm asking. As soon as I say the answer, you go, oh, is that what he means? The big pattern is Sefer Bereshit. As we know already from the Zohar, and I discussed this last week, the Zohar that the Sfirot are symbolized by biblical figures, especially in Sefer Bereshit. Avraham is Chesed, Yitzchak is Din, and Yaakov is Rachamim, Yaakov is Tiferet. Like Emet? Emet and Tiferet. It's a number of things. And then, who is Yesod? Yosef. And what happens to Yosef by the end of Sefer Bereshit? Yosef goes down into Egypt, bringing everybody else with him. That's the descent into the Klippa. That represents the Shvirata Kelim, the smashing of the vessels, and the divine light goes down into the Klippa. That's the big map. Everything in the Torah after Sefer Bereshit is the Tikkun. Everything is coming out of the Klippa towards illumination and enlightenment. That's the big pattern for the Ramchal. In other words, he shows you how historically... I mean, all I want to do is discuss the Ramchal in a way you can understand really the shift he's making. If you want the full details of his system, which are phenomenal, then go into his texts. The Ramchal is deeply concerned at this end of the spectrum with fixing the Shekhinah. And the Shekhinah, as you know, is the divine presence in the world. Now, here's the thing. For the divine, pre- the divine presence in the world for the Ramchal is not that, you know, we all, g- <laughs> you know, that you and I would like get up now and uh, go to the uh, Iratika and, you know, stand a respectful distance from Harabayat and there would be this, I don't know, big square thing glowing. Some people have a very corporeal understanding of what the Shekhinah actually is. But the Ramchal is there to help fix our corporal understanding and once again to understand that everything Ari is speaking about is a mashal. But the Shekhinah is a global, first of all within Am Yisrael, the Prat, and then the Adam Bichlal, realization of the unity of God and that everything that exists and everything that has existed according to this system of management 
existed for a tachlit, for a purpose that was to bring about the greatest good possible. And that our understanding, uh, well, our realization of that, of the Yachdut of Hashem, depends upon our understanding this form of management. It is a very, very important thing for a person to understand Kabbalistic ideas for the Ramchal, because only through Kabbalistic ideas as revealed by the Zohar and by the Yari will a person come to realize just how everything in the world is unified by divine will. But what's really, really, really needing to be fixed in the world for the Ramchal, therefore, is what? The concept of God. The whole journey of the humanity and the whole journey of the Jewish people within humanity and the whole journey of the revelation of Kabbalah is the concept of God in the world. And the concept of God in the world can go down into the klipa. And then it must emerge from the klipa to its rightful place. The concept of God in the world is the realization that everything that exists exists because it has a purpose. She'en davar, she'en lo makom. There is nothing that doesn't have a place. In fact, Ramchal defines the Rashimu as everything just having a place in there, which means that at the level of Rashimu, there are no differentiated grades or hierarchies. Everything's just one basic thing that has the concept of makom. The node of management manages everything in the world to a final end, which is the revelation of Shekinah and our understanding that there is a God in the world and our behavior accordingly. You know, I wouldn't be the first person to point out that the Ramchal does seem to have a fairly strong emphasis on intellectual apprehension. And that, my friends, is not a coincidence. Because the Ramchal is very much focused on this concept of Da'at. Da'at for the Ramchal is consciousness of the divine, the awareness, the correct concept of God in the world, because the world will, in the Messianic age will be filled with Da'at. Who else do we know from Jewish history also had a major focus on the concept of Da'at? Sorry? Exigentes namientes. The Rambam. Rambam criticized in his day and beyond for over-intellectualizing Judaism, also having this focus on, on Da'at as being the final product. That's not necessarily a coincidence. When we say, Mi Moshe v'ad Moshe lo kam Moshe, from Moses to Moses, and unlike Moses, most people think, well, it's generally understood and correctly that that refers to say Moshe Rabbeinu to the Rambam but there were some very other famous Moshe's in Jewish history about whom that could possibly also be said and they all seem to have a preoccupation with the concept of Da'at. What is Moshe in the Lurianic system? Moshe is Da'at and therefore his corresponding number in the Klippa is Bil'am because Yodea Da'at Elyon Moshe represents the concept of Da'at now, this idea, of course, was not lost on the Ramchal himself. Part of what the Ramchal got in trouble for was the fact that he set up a Chabura, a group of students in Padua, who were leaning towards saying that there might be some very special people in their generation. 
and those very special people may not be that far away from where they're sitting. In fact, they might even be in that room. Moshe Chaim Lutzato married a woman called Sipora. He wrote a phenomenal mystical commentary on his own Ketubah where he outlines some of these ideas, but the full-blown picture is really in his Zohar Tinyana, which is his amazing rewriting, in a sense, of the Zohar, in which he describes that whereas we have till now been aware that there is a Mashiach ben Yosef and a Mashiach ben David, there's a third element of Mashiach, and that is the concept of Moshe. And therefore, Moshe is the one that brings us together and reveals the new Da'at to the world. So the Ramchal placed a fair amount of importance on his own revelations. Make no mistake. But that's, we don't remember him from having, for having been a naughty boy. We remember him for having totally revolutionized the Mashalik picture of what Lurianic Kabbalah is trying to do. There is a lot of itkasya in the Ramchal. There's a lot of Ramchal stuff which is hidden and which is very, very... <laughs> it's, it's not necessarily nominal. But the Ramchal suffered in his lifetime, obviously, because of those revelations that were seen as not appropriate to his time. The Ramchal's reputation therefore suffered, and was not revived till later in that century by the Gaon of Vilna himself. Eliyahu the Gaon of Vilna. And remember who's saying this, that Eliyahu the Gaon of Vilna said that he would have walked to wherever the Ramchal was in the world to sit at his feet and learn. So the Ramchal, to have the gra reinstitute his reputation gives us some glimpse about who the Ramchal is. There is not a topic in Jewish thought on which the Ramchal did not write and each of his books is a complete revolution of method. But his influence on Kabbalah is very, very big. Sorry? He was exiled. First, he, they, they, it's very interesting. The writings of the Ramchal were put in Cheyrim but not the Ramchal himself. So he could get an aliyah and surely just couldn't bring his siddur with him. He went first to Germany and then the rabbis in Germany also gave him a hard time so he ended up in Amsterdam and then subsequently in Eretz Israel. It's very difficult in Ramchal studies to know exactly which books were written where and when for a lot of the texts. And like I say, anyone who can find that box which was last seen in Frankfurt in about the year 17... 40. Anyone who can see that box containing about a thousand pages of the Ramchal's own handwriting that was secreted for posterity is going to make their career in Jewish studies without any problems. The Gra. I'm going to focus the Gra. Well, well, next week I'm going to talk about I'm going to talk about Kabbalistic ideas within the Hasidic world. So I don't want anybody jumping up and down going, ah, what you're talking about was also happening in the Hasidic world. I know. There are various common themes. The Gaon of Vilna, of course, is known as the famous Mit Naged, the one who opposed the Hasidic movement, despite 
contemporary attempts to whitewash that history. It was the Grah who was a major force behind the Khairim against the Hasidic movement. Two Khairims, in fact. And the Grah went on record and had no problem going on record saying, I don't like Hasidim. I don't like what they're doing. He was a mitznaged. Why was he? Ah, well, <laughs> that's... The gra- I, the, I've, actually, I've actually discussed that, and there is, uh, I don't want to get too much off topic, but uh, if you've got, if, in essence, uh, the, there were some maybe one or two conceptual ideas, but the Gra's major problem was that the Hasidim, first of all, were cloistering themselves to daven by themselves, to create their own minyanim, they introduced their own shechita, they were changing minhagim, left, right and center, even in tefillah, they adopted nusach sfarad, they were known as the cut. And there were obviously reports of what they were doing that were getting to the ears of the Gra that were wildly exaggerated. The Gra wasn't exactly, you know, cruising around Europe in his BMW. The Gra was firmly fixed inside his room in Vilna and was hearing lots of different things that some of which, by the way, were probably true and some of which were probably either outright lies or wildly exaggerated. It's very difficult to go and try and get in the mind of the Gra and understand why he made that decision to come out against the Hasidim, but he certainly did. But because of that, some people have the impression that the Gra was somehow anti-mystical or anti-Kabbalistic. Because people say, oh, Hasidim, oh, they're all studying Kabbalah. Ah, the Gra. He was against the Hasidim, so he must have been against Kabbalah. But of course, that nothing could be further from the truth. The Gra is one of the major, major Kabbalists of the 18th century and also effects a very major shift in the bringing down of Kabbalistic ideas and knowledge. Still now, we're still up there in the higher worlds, even with the Ramchal's Mashalik shift. But the Gra, who is soaked, of course, in the Kabbalah of the Ramchal, and he's read Emma Kamelech, and he's read lots of other things, as well as completely Baki and the Zohar, sits down to try and put order into this entire picture. And in doing so, the Gra effects yet another very, very interesting shift. And that is that he moves from the Mashalik to what we might call, and please don't be frightened of this word, I'm frightened of this word, there's no need for you to be. But perhaps there's no better word. Psychological. That really, everything that we're talking about is not just happening in either real or mashalic realms. And remember, there was a massive debate in the 18th century about whether Lurianic Kabbalah was a mashal or not. Famously, in, not in Mishnah Chassidim, but in his other work, Kabbalistic work, Yosher Levav, Emmanuel Chayriki comes out and says, we're not talking about Mashal, we're talking about literal situations here. And the Gra and others were very emphatic that it was a Mashal. But it's not just a Mashal that's trying to show how God's will works in the world. That, of course, is all going on. But it's deeply relevant to us as personal individuals. Everything that can be said about Adam de Le'ela can be said about Adam de Le'tata. Man, human beings down below in this world. An example. We have a few Kabbalistic texts for the Gra. I'm basing most of my discussion for the next few minutes on the Gra, on his Perush to Sifredit's Niuta, and also there is a Likut of Kabbalistic writings at the end of that in one particular essay called Sodat Simtsum. And Sodat Simtsum is a very, which is also actually a Perush on Mishnah Hasidim by the Gra. And in Sodat Simtsum, 
you'll notice that in when I discuss Kabbalistic ideas, I'm much more exact and strict with myself about mentioning sources because the whole problem with Kabbalah in the world today is that people are not mentioning enough sources. At the beginning of Surat Simtsum, the Gra tells you in this discussion of Rashimu and Kav and Ein Sof that Ratzon, which is the will, the infinite will of Ein Sof and everything out here, utilizes as its first vessel Yecholet. How would we translate Yecholet? Potency or ability. Whether we're talking about omnipotence or omniability or whether we're talking about specific abilities, ability is the vessel utilized by will. And already, once the Gra is making statements like that in order to explain this cosmic arrangement about the universe in general, we realize that it also applies deeply to the individual as well. And we start to set up that pattern to begin to understand what it is that Kabbalah is trying to tell us about ourselves. In this system, of, particularly of Chaim Vital, where we have what we call... If anyone here has studied its time, I'm going to apologize for the following summary. But if we're talking about Adam Kadmon, Adam Kadmon is, as you know by now, the first configuration of Sfirot, whether circular or linear, that emerges inside the Halal. But Adam Kadmon, everything is going. There are lights, there are letters, there are names of God. Everything's emerging from Adam Kadmon. And everything's a process that's evolving and emanating until it gets to about here. Until it gets to halfway down the body of Adam Kadmon. And that, for Chaim Vital, is where the Shvirat HaKelim happens. It happens what we call the par, outside the Parasadak, the halfway across this massive spiritual configuration inside the Halal which is the root of everything, called Adam Kadmon. It's a language. Kabbalah is a language. I know some of the terms and concepts they're using are strange, but it is a language. Now, in the first stages of reconstruction of the shattered vessels that are going to create the universe in which we live, there are several major parts of him, meaning integrated collections of Sfirot that must integrate and form holes in order to contain the light. And they form the world of Atsilut, as we have discussed, the world of emanation, the highest of the four worlds, although they are really, really posited a world above that. And that itself reminds me that in the last two talks I have not discussed the concept of Naran Chai. So people who are wondering why I have not discussed the five divisions of the soul, because everything parallels to that. Don't get confused by that footnote. That the first of these reconstructed Partsufim is a massive configuration called Atik. And Atik is really the feminine part of Adam Kadmon. We don't see the Dukhra, we do not see the masculine aspects of Atik, only the feminine aspects. And Atik is the beginning of the world of Atsilut, and the head of Atik is called Resha Deloit Yada, the head that is not known. These are Zoharic terms. And the grass shows us that our entire reality of Malchut is rooted in this concept of Resha Deloit Yada, meaning that on an existential level that all of our reality is grounded in unknowing, but on a cosmic level that the will of God, and certainly many of us can testify to this, that the will of God comes into the world concealed. It comes into the world concealed. It is not 
open in the world. People can go around their entire lives and not realize that everything that happens is in accordance with the will of God. So Da'at, consciousness, God consciousness, comes into the world and the management by the divine of the world is concealed and obviously must be revealed through the construction of this divine reality that we need to do as human beings. But something else is going on. Because after Atik is, an, is the configuration that is really the shape of the whole of the world of Atzilut, the world of emanation, which is another macro-anthropic structure called Arich Anpin. And Arich Anpin has in his head the Hitlabshut, the enclosement of the Partsuf behind Arich, which is Atik. And inside Arich's head are the seven lower sfirot of Arich. The three ones always remain above. Remember, there's this basic division between the upper three sfirot and the lower seven sfirot. You'll see where I'm going with this in a second. The seven lower sfirot of Arich, of Atik, are mitla based. They're enclosed in the head of Arich. And says the Gra, and this is very, very big for the Gra, because of the whole thesis that emerges from the Gra, that Atik is time. That the first partsuf that is created in this universe in an attempt to reconstruct the universe as a vessel to contain the light of God is the concept of time. And the seven lower sfirot of Atik enclose themselves in the world of Atzilut to create the seven days of creation. Meaning, for those of us of course who have read the Ramban, meaning the 7,000 years of historical time in this particular cycle. Now, we're getting somewhere. Now, history and an envelopment of God, an enclosement of God in history is happening. Basically, for the Gra, Ze'eranpin, not Arechanpin, but the real hero of the world of Atsilut, Ze'eranpin, a configuration, a masculine configuration inside the world of Atsilut, represents humanity. And its feminine counterpart, Nukva, which is growing in order to have a complete unification between the masculine and feminine principles in reality, the Nukva is time. And humanity works with time, to grow with time, to grow with history, to gain consciousness of the divine that can be revealed in the world. But for the Gaon of Vilna, for the Graha, what, therefore, is flowing through the Kav? It's not just enough that Ramchal says, Oh, the Ratzon of Ensof is coming into the Kav. But what does that mean, says the Gra? What is flowing through the Kav? How is God revealed in the world? Remember, you're the Gra. What are you going to say? How is God revealed in the world? Torah. Torah is that which is coming through the Kav. Therefore, in a sense, Torah is the light of the will of the divine. It is, this is very different from what's being said a few hundred miles away in the Hasidic world. We'll get on to that next week. The Torah is the light that's coming through the Kav. Your job is basically to be the Kav. To envelop the light. To the light to fill you. And through that, you are able to, if you utilize the whole world as a project of Torah, 
to use everything in science and everything in the world and the whole physical world and metaphysical world in order to understand Torah in order to be illumined by Torah, then you raise the olamot, which are built in the structure of Adam as well. The interior of a person is built through the sfirot, that's the yosher, the midot, and so on. And they have their source from inside the kav. But remember that the <laughs> igulim created from the rashimu is what creates the worlds. But you, as the mediating factor between those two, is humanity raising yourself to become the kav that can contain divine light. And that, of course, makes sense when you look at the whole career of the gra. The Gra actually has a very interesting... Uh, this, this is a confusing point, but I just want to say it because I can see some people are looking at me going... Uh, the Gaon of Vilna has a, uh, mentioned it, has a famous commentary on the Sifrit, it's the Uta section of the Zohar. And in the beginning there, he starts by saying that really, because of a whole discussion of the concept of Sefer Safar Vasipur, which the Sifrit, it's goes into, also based on the Sefer Yetzirah, which the Gra also wrote a commentary to. It, it, it went everywhere, the Gra that we can understand all of this in an amazing mashal that you have God and creation really symbolized by the first two letters of the name of God and then the Vav represents text it represents the word of God the revealed word of God in the world and hey represents you, the reader of the text, the one who is keeping the Torah, the one who is following the Torah. That means that the central Vav and hey really are both the two sides of the same coin, which is the interface, one being creation and then reading the creation as Torah. But your job, as Malchut, is to bring yourself up to the Yud, to bring yourself up to good, as in fact, uh, to, to God, as in fact Chaim Vital says, that the ultimate stage is that Malchut will rise up to be at the level of Chochmah directly. That's why for the Ramchal and the Gra, uh, Atzilut eventually disappears. Atzilut is just a silhouette of what's meant to be. Ultimately, the three lower worlds of Biyah, which is our entire physical and spiritual universe, rises up to encompass Atik directly and to have a direct relationship with divine consciousness outside of history even, inside time, or directly enclosed upon time. These are very, very, very big ideas, and they are not <laughs> the only ideas, of course, that are going on in the 18th century to create the schools of Kabbalah that you see today. For example, if you go into a lot of Kabbalistic yeshiva today, you will, they will be studying Kabbalah that has nothing to do with the whole Ramchal Gra continuum. I picked that, but I really need to emphasize this. I'm not a Ramchal head or a Grah head. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm both. I'm into them. I've studied them both deeply. They're phenomenal. But there are some people who don't know anything in Kabbalah about the Ramchal and the Gra and have picked an entirely different derech, which also comes from the 18th century. And if you go into most places in Yerushalayim, probably today, serious Kabbalistic yeshivot, they will not be studying the Ramchal and the Gra. They will be studying the works of another 18th century figure who takes an entirely different picture. He's not in Europe. The Rashash, Rav Shalom Sharabi, who is, of course, from Yemen. Yemen. 
and the Rashash arrives in Yerushalayim around about the 1740s. There's a massive aliyah of very many mystical figures such as the Orachayim. And the Rashash basically is telling you that I'm not interested in anything about Lurianic Kabbalah except what Chaim Vital has composed. They said of the Rashash, he even once looked at half a page of Sarugian writings and fainted. And for the Rashash, this reality that the Ari is describing is one that you have to get inside. And when you sit and you study Luriani Kabbalah, you're in it and you see it and it's real. And particularly when you pray, you pray with kavanot that affect worlds and svirot. And you meditate, you meditate deeply upon the various combinations and configurations of the name of God in various situations. Because every single hour of every single day there are different configurations happening. And the key to that is understanding the Lurianic system. Please bear with me. If you've sat through the last two talks, please bear with me because I am going somewhere. You'll see that it will go somewhere as we bring down these ideas to exactly what is happening Kabbalistically in the world. So the Rashash is a very, very big school. And they're still studying the works of the Rashash and Chaim de la Rosa and the other students in a big, long tradition in different yeshivot. And if you go into those yeshivot, they will tell you that the only thing you should be studying is what? The Rashash's commentaries on Etz Chaim. If you go to other people, they'll tell you, no, what you should be studying is what we're studying. So I'm trying to convey to you that there are many, many different drachim. But we need to start to develop a consciousness of a composite of all of those drachim. That's the real synthesis that needs to happen, biyamenu. The gra isn't just the gra. The gra also is responsible for the flowering of a whole school of ideas. The gra himself comes at the end of this line that goes from the Ari to him. There are other influential books that I might discuss next week that are also floating around. But the Gra really is at the end of that particular chain, putting it all together. The Mashalik shift is really big, so big for the Gra that he's brought it down to a psychological shift and that people are able to see the relationship between the big cosmic ideas they're doing and what is actually happening in their own life. But he also begins entire school of thought. And I'll just spend a couple of minutes on that, then I'll finish. The big school of thought, there are several major capitalists. Who were the big students of the Gra? You know one of them. Chaim of Volozhin. And Chaim of Volozhin also, a pretty serious capitalist, wrote a book called Nefesh Chaim about the mystical meaning of Torah and so on, as though to back up what I was saying about the Gra. But there's another student of the Gra, and who went on to become a massive Kabbalist and in fact was one of those who ended up here in the land of Israel because remember that the Gaon of Vilna sent quite a number of people and families and communities to the land of Israel as part of an attempt to resettle messianically the land of Israel and that is Menachem Mendel of Shklov and Menachem Mendel of Shklov who we call the Gramam was a big student of the Gra it would be impossible to go into the unique Kabbalistic ideas of the Gramam which take the Gra's basic universe and then move it incredibly uh, within the Lurianic system. But just to give you an idea, a taste of the sort of thing that he does. The Kav has two points to it. You see, when the Gra says become the Kav, he wants you to raise yourself and the whole of reality and your reality. And your reality is Malchut, the lowest of the Svirot, which is rooted in Radla. And he wants you to take the whole of Malchut and raise it up to the level of Yesod, the second lowest Sfirah, to unite with the Shekhinah 
And what is Yisod? Yisod is Yosef. But what is the other term that we use for Yisod as well? What was Yosef? Yosef was a Tzadik. So the concept of Tzadik matches the concept of Yisod. And so he wants you to be calm. That's what to be calm at Tzadik is. Not just to sit in a room and go, oh, I want to be a Tzadik. It's to raise the whole world with you by using the whole world as your project of Torah. And for the Gramam, there's a Tzadik. Here, well, he, <laughs> I know that the letter Tzadik is not the concept of Tzadik, but he uses those interspersedly. So there is a... No. There's a Tzadik here. And there's a tzaddik here, meaning symbolizing a tzaddik above, at the beginning of the kav, and a tzaddik below. Each of those starts with a mem. Here is Moshe, because everything that comes through comes through the Torah, through the concept of Moshe. And here is Moshiach. And the whole, the gramam wraps this whole idea up in the concept of tzimtzum. That tzimtzum is in fact a way in which the Torah enables us to have a direct line going through history and time with our divine creator. And that is the whole purpose of the Jewish people is to be that Kav leading from the concept of Moshe to the concept of Mashiach, from the revelation of divine consciousness in the world to the full redemption of the world itself. The Gramam has a big student. And I'll end on this guy because otherwise we'll just get totally... It's, it's so many schools and so interconnected, the unfolding of Kabbalistic ideas in the world. The Gramam has a big student called Yitzhak Isaac Haver. Yitzhak Isaac Haver wrote a book called Pitchei Sha'arim, which is the full real flowering of the whole concept of the Gra. What is coming through the Kav for Haver? What's coming through the Kav? The Torah. But what does that really mean? What does the Torah give us? What does the Torah represent for us as human beings in the world? Imagine you are not who you are. Imagine you just woke up yesterday, or even this morning, or in my case, this afternoon. Imagine if you just woke up, and you've got to look at the world, and you've got to imagine what's my relationship to the world. I look around at these people. I see all these from people around me. What, is that me? Am I part of that world? What's going on? Why do I think the things I do? Why do I live the way I live? When's the last time I actually sat down and thought about it? What's coming through the car? What is Torah? What is it? It is the concept of mitzvot that bring to the universe the opportunity for individuals to ascend spiritually based on the idea of choice. Based on the idea on the one hand, reward and punishment, and din v'chesed, but ultimately, the Torah is there for us to choose to live that way or not. Based on the idea of reward and punishment. Not even, I'm not even talking about now the manute of halacha, I'm talking about in general. Because don't forget that until Har Sinai, we still had a Torah, it just only contained seven mitzvot. The Torah coming into the world is the idea of order, as you said, but also the idea of allowing human beings to gain spiritual ascent through choosing to do good. And therefore, for the Gramam, without the Torah in the world, there is no free choice in the world. We choose to perform the Torah because we choose to join with God in this project of creation, and we choose also to do the good. 
Therefore, the Torah represents Bechirach of Shit. Bechirach of Shit is the ultimate existential point for every human being. And Bechirach of Shit is not some 19th century Musa concept. It's an absolute reality. All of us need to renew our relationship with the Creator every single day based on Bechirach of Shit. Don't take this advice I'm about to say, but really... Don't take this advice I'm about to say, but really, all of us should wake up every day and ask ourselves why we are leading the life we're living. Do I want to be a religious Jew today? Do I want to be whatever it is I am? And if the answer is, I don't know, or the answer is no, then don't do it until you're ready to do it. I said, don't take that advice. <laughs> but Bechirach of Shit is an uncompromisable foundation of human existence. And it is, says Hanford, the only thing that you ultimately have in common with the Creator. The Creator of the universe, through infinite divine will, in connecting with a finite universe, in order to be revealed inside that finite universe, creates the world out of free will. The forces involved in Tzimtzum of an infinite are way beyond our comprehension, but they result in the creation of a universe. And the only other, the only thing you have in common with an infinite God that creates a universe is that you too are free. And you are free to keep Torah and you are free to, and that is what is coming through the Kav. Freedom. Because in freedom is God. So you can see that just in one particular direction, one student of one student of the Grah are taking the massive directions. What I've done tonight is I've looked at the Ramchal and the Grah and some of the offshoots focusing primarily on the very, very, very beginning of Luriani Kabbalah, which is the concept of Tzimtzum and the concept of Kav. You can see now, and I'm going to spend 30 seconds on this and I'm going to wrap it, but I want everybody to follow. You can see now how... Does everybody know the Kabbalistic context of what Esther is studying, for example? So she is, she is studying... With who? Correct, with Philip Burke. So Philip Burke started the Kabbalah Center. Yeah, I'm going to discuss this. I'm going to discuss this. <laughs> Esther is studying with Philip Burke. Now, Philip Burke, if, if you go with the histories that's provided by the Burke family, is a student of Rav Brandwein, who was a son-in-law of one of the major Kabbalists of the 20th century, called... Rav Yehuda Ashlag. Now, Rav Yehuda Ashlag was a very holy Kabbalist, and Rav Yehuda Ashlag, once again, working in the context of trying to develop a logic, a system, by which Lurianic Kabbalah can be understood. The exact conceptual antecedents of Rav Ashlag can be mapped, and they go basically back to the extent, sort of sidestepping the Gra school, and basically back to the Ramchal. If you look at the concept of the Ramchal, the idea of Teva Hatov Lehetiv, that it is the nature of the good to bestow good, and that is the fundamental basis of the Kabbalistic logic built up by the Ramchal, you will see that precisely in Ashlag's concept of Ratzon Lahashpia. Basically, Rav Ashlag is telling you this, but basically the Ratzon Lahashpia of Ashlag and 
this binary between the Ratzon Hashpia and the Ratzon Kabel, and therefore they create a vessel, and the vessel is that which can really contain the light, and then grows up and so on, which means that that leads on to an entire way of looking at the world. But all of these ideas, in whichever way they're worked on, I just made the mental decision not to go into a Shlagi in Kabbalah at the moment, because it really, I've spoken about enough tonight, and I might do that on another occasion. But to realize that that is one school of one school of one school of one thought, and it just so happens that a few people have got up and said, oh no, this is Kabbalah. But in fact, they are missing the entire dimension of the unfolding of the Torah Tassod in the world, and the concept of God. I mean, really, where Esther is interesting is because... At the end of the Vitalian picture, what's happening is we see the rise of the feminine, the rise of the consciousness of the feminine in the world. That's why movements such as feminism, that's why people like Madonna and so on, in a sense, are very, very much on an exterior level, may represent some of that phenomenon. We are, at the end of the day, trying to reach unification in the world. Kabbalistic thinking does not have a problem with the rise of feminine consciousness in the world. How did I discover this? Because when I was 16 years old and I was in yeshiva, I was very mentally ambitious, I suppose, stupid in other ways, but I decided that I would teach, I would learn Kabbalah. I happened to be studying in a Hasidic yeshiva actually Chabad Yeshiva. So, because we're doing Chabad texts, but I felt that there was this underlying thing that, of Kabbalah, framework of Kabbalistic ideas that I, I didn't really comprehend. Learning Tanya and learning various other things. So, I picked up a book called Ptichal Chochmata Kabbalah, an opening to the wisdom of the Kabbalah, which was going to lay it out all for me. So, I thought, brilliant. I had no concept that what I was looking at was an Ashlagian text written by Rav Yehuda Ashlag on his system, about his system, and his particular way in which he was interpreting and martialising and so on the whole Orionic system, which was written in the first half of the 20th century. And so I studied that and thought that I now knew the basics of Kabbalistic thought. But in my very first conversation with someone you know, older and obviously more mature with me than me, in the yeshiva about Kabbalistic ideas, they had no idea what I was talking about. And yet both of them were claiming to represent Kabbalistic traditions. So it was a very early realization that made me, oh, wait a minute, there's obviously not just one Kabbalah here, and like everything else, we must go back to the back to the back to the back to the sources to get context of how these ideas have been unfolding. So there is no better way than to do this sequentially and then you will realize. But those of you who were thinking that the ideas I've spoken about this week and last week are extremely reified and abstract, please remember that we are gradually bringing it down. We are bringing it down. That is the journey of Kabbalistic thought to be brought down into the world until we get to the 20th century. So it's not like I'm standing here saying that Rav Ashlag's Kabbalah and the Kabbalah Center all of us is a waste of time. There was a time when I certainly would have said that about the Kabbalah Center, and I still may. 
but it represents part of the journey of Am Yisrael to grapple with this immense revelation, to bring it down to a world where we can change the consciousness of God in the world, and hopefully that will work in sync with our history. The history of Am Yisrael is not a secular history, it is a holy cosmic history. Things that happen today are as important as things that happen in the time of Tanakh. And part of what Kabbalistic teaching is trying to get you to understand is that your actions and words and projects today have a deep impact upon the spiritual structure of all worlds and that everything comes into alignment so that this world can in fact contain the divine revelation. So thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon. Thank you.